0: Our text is Psalm 80, Psalm 80. It is, as Psalm 122 was last week, an Advent psalm. That is, it's a psalm traditionally assigned to be read or sung or chanted during the Advent season. And we'll make three points They're there in your bulletin. The shepherd and the flock, the vine, and the son of man. So first, the shepherd and the flock, Psalm 80, Psalm 80, verse 1. Hear us, the psalm starts, hear us, shepherd of Israel. God is invoked as Israel's shepherd. And shepherd here, shepherd is a royal title. The the kings in Israel were shepherds of the people. So shepherd is not just a sort of rustic pastoral image. It's a kingly image. God, the shepherd king, guides and he provides for, he protects and directs his people. The text says he leads or he guides Joseph like a flock. Joseph was the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribes mentioned in verse 2. And this indicates that the psalm, Perhaps was concerned with the northern tribes. They were northern tribes. So it may be that the Assyrian invasion of the north, which took place in 722-ish BC, is in view in the Psalm. Either the threat of it or its aftermath. Yet there's a reference to the Ark and to Benjamin and to Jerusalem, which was in the south. And the whole texture of the rest of the psalm makes it clear that the future plight of the whole nation is in view. So the text is addressing not just the north, but the whole nation and its future. But the God who's invoked here, the God who's called upon, the one who shepherds and who leads, is manifestly present in the ark, the text says. He sits, enthroned. Another kingly word. He sits enthroned between the cherubim in the most holy place. You'll recall the ark had these two cherubim of hammered gold. And they're they're earthly images of the heavenly host which attend God's heavenly throne. And that God sits between them means he is the Lord of hosts. He's enthroned in the midst of his entourage, if you will. And this designation, calling God the God of hosts, is used four times in the text. It's translated in most English Bibles as God Almighty. You can see it in verse 4, verse 7, verse 14, verse 19. God Almighty, or Lord God Almighty. That's the God of hosts, the God enthroned in the midst of his angelic council. The ark invokes this. Because the ark is, if you will, the base of God's invisible, transcendent, heavenly throne. It's the footstool for his feet. And it's the place from which, in Israel's consciousness, God shepherds and guides the nation. There is a sense in which God, of course, is invisible and transcendent and everywhere. But the ark reminds Israel there's a sense in which he can be located. He's there uniquely as the Lord of hosts, and from there he guides the nation. So notice this at the outset, and this is often the case. Uh, The concern here in this psalm is not private. It's public, and it's corporate. It concerns the whole nation and and their future. And the appeal is to the God-enthroned above the ark, to the central place of Israel's worship. right. The cry is, hear us, lead us, you who are enthroned where we worship. These two realities, which are everywhere in the Psalms, should shape our praying. Prayer concerns the plight of the whole church. Or it easily devolves into a form of spiritual narcissism. It concerns the plight of the whole church. And it's centered on the church's public worship. It's it's, it's directed to the Lord who rules the nation from the ark. The public worship is the church's weekly prayer meeting. Among other things. And so this God, the shepherd... The Lord of hosts is called forth in the text to shine forth. The prayer is that God would manifest his radiance and his glory. It, the text says that he would awaken his might to come and to save us. It's a call for God to appear in his saving majesty, and power, and splendor. And thus we get this refrain in the text. The the text has a kind of chorus, you'll notice as as we read through it, which appears three times in the song. And you can see the first occurrence of it in verse 3. Restore us, O God. This is literally, turn us, O God, turn us. Make your face shine upon us. This is what we want in worship and in prayer and in life. This is the end of all things. God's immediate presence is his face. And that's the cause of our light. It's the cause of our joy. It's the cause of our hope. That face is the goal and the end of your pilgrimage. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right, the psalmist says, the upright shall see his face. When I awake, I shall see his likeness. When he appears, we shall see him as he is. His servants, Revelation 21 at the end of the story, his servants behold his face. This is the fundamental orientation of the Christian life. The goal of all our desires, make your face shine upon us, is not, O oh Lord, let a sort of pleasant light gild our way. It is longing to see the triune God as he is in glory. And this refrain evokes the great ironic benediction in Numbers, where the priests, after making atonement, would come out and place the benediction of God on the people and they would ask God to lift up his face or his countenance to make his face shine on the people that they might have peace. And so this shining forth in the text, when God shines forth, he shows us his wondrous face and he thus, as the text says, awakens his might that we, the text says, the whole people of God are turned or restored or saved. This is is not a prayer for initial salvation. Israel's already been redeemed from Egypt. They're already in covenant with God. Make your face shine upon us. Restore us that we might be saved is a prayer for victory, for the fullness of God's saving and healing and restoring light to be manifest. And so already, already, hopefully, you can see why this text, especially this refrain, is an Advent prayer. Right? This expresses the very heart of Israel's longing. Make your face shine upon us. Restore us. Save us. It's at the heart, the pulsating heart of what makes prayer, prayer. And you can see that there's a crisis in the psalm, that provokes it in verses four through six. God is angry with the nation, their prayers are unanswered. The text says, and instead of this you know, bountiful table of Psalm 23, they've been fed bread of tears, they drink cups of tears, or tears by the bowlful. So the nation's humiliated, they're in mourning. And thus you get this Advent yearning for God to come. Advent means coming. Right? And they and save them, and the chorus is repeated again in verse 7. So notice how this cry, this restore us, O God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. That's virtually identical to O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lonely exile here. Until the Son of God appear. Until He shines forth. That's the shepherd and that's the state of the flock. And so the second point here, beginning in verse 8, is the vine. And here the story backs up a little bit. To God's historical care. And his blessing of the people. The text says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. It's a reference to the founding of the nation at the Exodus. You transplanted a vine. This is a famous and pervasive Old Testament image for Israel a vineyard. Famous parable of Israel in the vineyard in Isaiah 5, for example. You drove out the nations and you planted this vine. That's a reference to the conquest under Joshua. You cleared the ground for it. It took root. It filled the land. Now we're in the land. Israel's possessed the land. And then the, the image is poetically amplified. Mountains were covered with its shade. This is quite a vine. Right? It now covers mountains with its shade and cedars with its branches. Right? It, it, it reaches out to the sea, which is the Mediterranean, And its shoots reach out as far as the river, which would be the Euphrates in this text. And so these are the rough boundaries of the Davidic Empire at its height. So the psalmist is recalling how God delivered the nation, guided the nation, planted the nation in the land, blessed the nation, prospered it, extended its boundaries. It's a recollection of the glory which is now in the past. This is what the shepherd, the Lord of hosts, has done. But in light of the current distress, you know the past sometimes just causes pain because it's gone. Right right now he says that, that the vineyard's walls are broken down. Beasts ravage it, insects swarm it. The vineyard is defenseless, it's desolate. And so you get yet a, another echo of the chorus, verse 14 return to us, God Almighty. Or return to us, Lord of hosts. Earlier it was restore or turn us. This is a a subtle but important point. Earlier it was turn us. Here it's return to us. God, it appears, has turned away or turned his face or his back to Israel. And we cannot turn. Right, We, We can't be turned. We cannot repent unless he turns first. Turn to us so that we can turn. And so he's desperate here because the nation's in a desperate situation. He says to God, look down from heaven and see. I I think, and I think we've seen this in the Psalms as well, a good bit of praying is just that. It's pleading with God to see what we see, to see the situation and to act, to watch over the vine or the root The text says that your your right hand, your powerful, mighty hand, has planted. The text calls this root, the son you have raised up for yourself. Israel is not only God's flock, or his vine, or his root, but Israel is God's son. That's the reference here. In Exodus 4, for example, God tells Moses... Speak to Pharaoh and say, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may worship me. You know what's going on here? When when the psalmist calls Israel God's son, he's making the plea just a little more passionate and a little more biting. It's as if to say God is not tending to his own child. He walks right up to the edge of accusing God of neglect. It's not just that the vineyard has been ravaged, that boars are eating it, that its walls are broken down, that the nation is in distress, but this is your son. And so the situation is dire. If you look at verse 16, the vine is cut down. It's burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Hope emerges then with our third point, the Son of Man. Verse 17, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. Again, the right hand is the hand of power or the hand of honor. The Son of Man, the text says, whom you have raised up for yourself. So here, the Son of Man is distinguished from the Son which Israel is. Israel cannot be the instrument, the Son which saves itself. This Son of Man, in view in the text now, has God's mighty hand upon him for Israel's salvation. And the Jews, the ancient Jews, in their Targums, which were their uh, loose oral commentaries on the law, Targums, they recognized in this text and the reference to the Son of Man a reference to the coming Messiah, which is just what Christians see in the text. This Son is the son Israel should have been. This is the man, then, of Psalm 1, who meditates on the law day and night and prospers in all he does. This one is the man of Psalm 8, whom God crowns with dominion over the creation. This son of man is the suffering and then exalted servant son of Isaiah. This is the Israelite who saves Israel. This is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, who ascends to receive everlasting dominion. And this term, Son of Man, of course, is Jesus' favorite self designation in the Gospels. His favorite way of identifying who he is Son of Man. For him, it is equivalent to Messiah. And so the psalm bursts out here, it bursts out of its bounds, and it sees the Messiah the man at God's right hand, the Son of Man who restores Israel, God's Son. And when God lays His hand on this Messiah, this Son of Man, verse 18 says, verse 18 says, then we will not turn away from you. The whole psalm is about turning, as is the whole Christian life. God must turn to us So that we can be turned. And when God turns to us in the Son of Man, in the Messiah, He secures a whole people who, unlike Israel, will not turn away. Right? Who together will adopt a life of continual repentance and turning. This one does this through the Spirit. You can see that at the end of verse 18, revive us. That is, breathe on us. Breathe the the breath of life into us, and we will call upon your name. As an aside, all three persons of the Trinity are in this text. The God of Israel, the Son whom he chooses, and the Spirit whom he breathes. And the psalm ends with this refrain. And by the end of the psalm, Clearly this refrain is now a cry for the Messiah to appear. Again, we see this often in the Psalms. They move from an initial crisis, which seems like maybe it's a local crisis. Maybe it's a personal crisis. Maybe it's a national crisis. But the logic of the Spirit and prayer leads them through that crisis to the Messiah, to the restoration of all things, and so it should be with our prayers. This happens over and over and over and over in the Psalms. There's very few Psalms that are just about the local immediate crisis. They move out this way. So, we get this refrain at the end. It's now a cry for the Messiah. Verse 19, restore us. Lord God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. So, this is a text which we've already seen points us to Jesus. But I want to explore just for a moment how fully and gloriously it does that. The prayer here is made to God, the shepherd of Israel. And we saw in the gospel lesson, Jesus comes and declares, "I'm the good shepherd." And this well-known title of the Lord is an open claim to be God. Right when Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd," he is saying, "I am Yahweh, the shepherd of Israel," and thus I am king. First of all, he is king in his lowly majesty. And now he's in king. He is king enthroned on high as the Lord of hosts in the heavenly sanctuary. And he leads, he guards, he defends his flock. He is the shepherd king, and, and Peter tells us he's the chief shepherd who will appear when God shines forth to judge and to save at the end of the age. Not only is he the shepherd king the shepherd king of the flock, he is the faithful flock. Finally, Israel is reduced to one man. One faithful son of man who is the son of God. The man of this text. And you can see then that Jesus is fully God and fully man. A text like this virtually demands it. For it is God himself, God himself as man, as son of man, who saves in this text. In addition, Jesus is the ark. He's the place. He's the location. He's the address where God tabernacles among men. He's the place where his glory dwells. Glory which John tells us, now has in the incarnation been seen. It's shown forth. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he means I am the shining forth of God's unapproachable light, of his radiance. The same shining forth prayed for here. He is in his advent, God's face shining on you. Jesus in Advent is God's turning his face and shining it on you. As Paul puts it this way, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, this was the New Testament lesson this morning, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And as this one, this shining... This turning, he is the awakened might of God come to save and to restore us. He's God's turning to us so that we might forever be turned to him. That means God answered Israel's prayer. He answered the prayer of the psalmist. You know, the psalmist may have thought his prayer was never answered in his lifetime. Israel may have lay desolate for decades more. It often looks like God's not heard any prayers, not answered any prayers. But he answers them super abundantly in this one. And there's more. Notice the vine is called a root in verse 15. And what does Isaiah tell us? He tells us the Messiah is the root, the plant that astonishingly springs up out of dry ground, out of faithless and barren Israel with no form, no beauty to attract us. It's this image of the vine, of Israel planted, once flourishing, but now in mourning. This lies behind Jesus' self-identification when he says, I am the vine. That's another way of saying, I'm Israel's restoration. I am the true vine who alone restores the ravaged vineyard of Israel. And so here, in Psalm 80, this ancient text, if we read it in the light of the the Incarnation, we see the glory. We see the, the sheer joy of what Advent is about. God, the Shepherd of Israel, the one enthroned in the midst of the host, has become man. This is the central mystery of the faith. And this is the, the place, beloved, where, from which we draw forth inexhaustible wonder. If we can't get it here, we're not going to get it anywhere, and the Christian faith is going to turn into moralism. Right? The ever-ancient, ever-new, inextinguishable light of Christmas is simply this. This God has become man. Not God in a man, Not God acting upon a man, not God acting through a man, not God in a close moral union with man, but God himself as man. God in your weak, frail human flesh. Who he is is on full display here. One divine person. The eternal Son of God in two natures. The Shepherd God of Israel. The Son of Man at the right hand. His eternal divine nature. His assumed human nature. And these two natures, the church has always confessed, are not confused. They're not mixed. They're not divided. And the reason there's so much stress on this in the history of the church is simply this. Who Jesus is is not incidental. He does what he does because he is who he is. He does what he does because he is who he is. His person, his identity, is the reason why his works have mighty, saving, enduring significance. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, he's just an ancient uh, Marvel kind of wonder-working prophet sort of guru guy. But you've cut the link between what he says and what he does and the being of God and you empty out the gospel of all significance. He does what he does and it means what it means because he is who he is. This is why we can say he is our salvation. He restores the flock. He revives the vineyard. He turns us so that we might be turned and be saved. And it's in the incarnate Christ, then, the Advent Son of God and Son of Man, where we find God's answer to this plea Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. Amen. Amen.